Good day, everyone. Captain Conservation here, bringing you the next podcast segment of The Tales of Marine Conservation. I will be your host through this swell podcast series as part of the Oceans in the Anthropocene course. For those new listeners out there, this podcast segments that you're about to listen to were created by the amazing students of GEV 4320 Oceans in the Anthropocene this fall 2022 in the School of Geography and the Environment at Villanova University. Each segment tackles an important endangered species and addresses key scientific information, such as the species biology, relationships with their ecosystems, fun animal facts, conservation measures, and their recommendations and prognosis for the future of these species. So hold on tight, grab your fins, and science communication hat as we embark in this adventure. Welcome to Tales of Marine Conservation. To kick off today's podcast, we have Maddie and Maddie ready to make some waves as they discuss whales. And we're going to get them started off on the right fin with a whale joke. So what do whales need to stay healthy? They just need some vitamin C. Here we go, Maddie and Maddie. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Whale Tales, hosted by Maddie Dolan and Maddie Lewis, also known as Maddie Squared. Hey, Maddie, I have a joke for you. What is a blue whale's favorite sandwich? I don't know. What? A grilled cheese. (laughs) Good one. All right, well, I'm just going to ignore that joke, and let's start with the topic of the day. The goal of this podcast is to teach you about the blue whale. Its scientific name is Balanoptra musculus, and it's the biggest animal on the planet. And even though it's the biggest animal, it's listed by the International Union for Conservation of Nature as endangered. I wonder how many people know that. I know. It's hard to wrap your head around the fact that such a huge animal could be endangered. I mean, they're so big. How big are they really? I'm glad you asked. They can grow to be around 180 tons and 30 meters long. Oh my gosh, that's huge. I remember reading one time that one blue whale can weigh just as much as 36 African elephants, which are the largest land mammals. Yeah, the United Kingdom's Natural History Museum has a great page online about blue whales with lots of interesting facts. Go check it out if you have a chance. Oh yeah, I love that website. When I visited their page, I also learned that the Antarctic blue whale is the largest subspecies, and the largest one ever measured was 33 meters long. I wonder how many subspecies there are. I thought there was just one kind of blue whale. There's actually some debate on how many subspecies there are, but the World Wildlife Fund recognizes five. As you just mentioned, one is the Antarctic blue whale, which is found in the Southern Ocean. It is also the only critically endangered subspecies. The other four are the pygmy blue whale, the North Atlantic and Pacific blue whale, the Northern Indian Ocean blue whale, and an unnamed subspecies found in the Southern Pacific Ocean. Wow. They're really everywhere, from the tropics all the way to the polar regions. It seems like with that kind of range, there should be a lot of them. I wonder why they're endangered? Well, one of the main reasons that the blue whales are endangered is whaling, which is what we're going to discuss right after this short break. Wow, Maddie, learning about blue whales is super cool. I wish I knew some fun facts about them. Well, lucky for you, I have one. Really? Let's hear it. Okay, drum roll, please. Blue whales aren't actually blue. What? Yeah, according to the World Wildlife Fund, they're gray with blue undertones, 
which makes them appear blue in the ocean. Wow, that's really cool. Okay, back to the podcast. Now back to our regularly scheduled programming. Our first topic that we want to discuss is whaling. Whaling has had a great impact on blue whale populations. Before whaling, it is estimated that the population size of blue whales was about 250,000. Now we think that populations are around 10,000 to 25,000. Oh, that's so sad. Humans really have a great impact on blue whale populations. That's true. To understand our impact in this entirety, we have to understand the history of whaling. As society continues to change, technology becomes more and more advanced. These advancements in technology made whaling easier for humans. The IUCN states that before we started to use techniques such as fast catcher boats and exploding harpoons, whales were generally able to escape human traps. Their size and speed was unmatched to humans' lack of technology. Technology really does play a huge role in whaling. Visual surveys and acoustic surveys are used to hunt whales. We can now understand whales' vocalization and recognize when they are trying to communicate with each other. It's almost like we can speak whale. Exactly, Maddie. We also use techniques such as photo ID to identify whales for hunting. All of these techniques combined led to the blue whales being heavily exploited in the 20th century, almost to the point of extinction. Whales were hunted for their blubber and oil, and humans went to extremes to obtain these resources. It's crazy to see the lengths some people went to kill whales. That's why we knew we needed regulations to try to control whaling. Exactly. Stopping whaling would be nearly impossible, but whaling was made illegal in the 1960s. Clearly, many illegal actions were still taken. I wonder if anything else happened in the 1960s to regulate whaling. That's a great question. The International Whaling Convention was held in 1966. What's that? It was held to investigate the trends of whaling numbers. A paper by Calderon et al. titled South Georgia Blue Whales Five Decades After the End of Whaling discusses this convention, procedures, and regulations surrounding whaling. This data was compiled from past and present whaling records, even after whaling was made illegal. Got it. I wonder what other patterns were determined from this data. That's a great question and a great segue into our second topic, migration patterns. But before we move into migration patterns, we have our fun fact break, too. Okay, Maddie, get ready for this fun fact. I think it might even be better than yours. Mm, I doubt it. Let me hear it. All right. According to the International Whaling Commission, blue whales weigh two tons at birth and gain 200 pounds a day during their first year alive. All right. That's pretty cool. I actually have a fun fact to add to that. It's also from the IWC. Oh, really? Yeah. Apparently, blue whales' hearts are the size of a small car. Wow. Okay. We're getting carried away. Back to discussing migration patterns. We hope that you are enjoying our podcast so far and have learned more about blue whales. We would now like to discuss our next topic, migration patterns. Where the whales move impacts the threats that they face. That's true. Blue whales live all over the world, and they travel incredibly far distances. A paper by Macaulay et al. titled Pygmy Blue and Antarctic Blue Whale Presence, Distribution, and Population Parameters in Southern Australia Based on Passive Acoustics discusses these migration patterns and human strategy to determine them. For the most part, these subspecies of blue whales are seen around the eastern, southern, and western coastline of Australia. Wow, I would love to travel there and see these whales myself. Me too. Southern Australia is known to be very diverse in these type of cetacean species. I wonder where else blue whales might be found. Well, I can help with that. Macaulay et al. also says that blue whales are spread across the Indian and Southern Ocean in search for food. Whales are more often detected towards the east because they favor areas where late summer to fall upwelling occurs. 
I think blue whales and I like the same seasons. Haha, <laughs> <laughs> me too. But Macaulay et al. also says that there is great seasonal variance in these migration patterns, which unfortunately whalers have been able to determine and use to their benefit for hunting purposes. Maddie, can you explain these frequencies and how they can be determined? Sure thing. Frequencies play a huge role in this process. Scientists can measure sound waves and frequencies of whales to determine the migration patterns. Latitude and longitude locations are also used to determine these feeding and migration patterns. That's really cool. I guess frequencies are really important. Yeah, they are. Blue whales are a really interesting and beautiful species, and it's heartbreaking the amount of threats they have. Yeah, Maddie, you're right. It really is, and we are going to discuss their many threats. Yet before we jump into this next section, we have a quick advertisement break. As we begin to enter the colder months of winter, there's nothing better than a movie night. The next time you find yourself struggling to pick a movie, we recommend watching Pinocchio. This movie features a very angry whale, which is actually quite opposite of the way whales act in the wild. They're very friendly and smart animals. Continue listening to hear a short clip from Pinocchio. In this clip, you will hear the whale in the film trying to eat Pinocchio and his dad. As much as Maddie and I love Pinocchio, it's not an accurate representation of what whales sound like. Here's a clip of what whales sound like when they're communicating in the wild. Before the break, we discussed the basic facts about blue whales, the process of whaling, and migration patterns. For the second segment of our podcast, we will discuss threats and conservation methods. And stay tuned for a question from a listener. Right before the advertisement break, we introduced the topic of threats. After our discussion of whales and their migration patterns, we thought this would be a good time to have a conversation about what various threats whales face, both natural and anthropogenic. Blue whales face many threats. According to the IUCN, the most significant threat is declining krill populations. Oh, I think we have a fun fact about krill. You're right. Let's take a super short fun fact break. Okay, for this fun fact, we're talking food. Blue whales are carnivores and they basically only eat krill. Yeah, and get ready for this fun fact. According to the Natural History Museum, in one mouthful of krill, a blue whale can take in 457,000 calories, and this is just a small snack for them. Oh my God, that's really cool. Okay, well, back to our discussion of threats. Some of the larger threats that blue whales face include ocean acidification and climate change. Exactly. According to the IUCN, krill distribution changes due to climate change and ocean acidification negatively impact whales. Wait, how does climate change reduce krill populations and change distributions? Well, according to The Guardian, when global warming causes ice in Antarctica to melt, the algae that lives beneath the ice sheets can't survive. That algae is krill food, and therefore, krill populations decline because their food source declines. There's also one natural predator of blue whales, according to the International Whaling Commission. Any guesses? Um, orcas? You got it. Great guess. Thanks. I know that generally blue whales can outswim orcas, but the calves are more likely to be hunted by them, which makes them the only natural predator. Yet, there are many anthropogenic threats towards blue whales as well. The IUCN discusses many threats towards whales. Accidental entanglement in fishing nets, hunting, and collision with ships are the top threats to whales. A paper by Asha DeVos entitled 
anthropogenic threats and conservation needs of blue whales discusses how much of the collisions are off the coast of California and Sri Lanka, where the shipping lanes overlap directly with blue whale habitats. The whales themselves do not have a very strong ability to avoid these ships. It's so interesting. That just made me think about a paper I read by McKenna et al. titled Simultaneous Tracking of Blue Whales in Large Ships Demonstrates Limited Behavioral Response for Avoiding Collision. It stated that whales slowly descend to avoid ships as opposed to horizontal avoidance. The ships that go below 11.6 miles per hour are not associated with blue whale mortality, but at, a, at speeds above 17.3 miles per hour, mortality is more common. Oh wow, I didn't realize speed had that much of a difference. Yeah, it really does. De Voice also discussed acoustic threats, aka noise pollution, to be a top threat towards blue whales. Shipping lanes with lots of traffic contribute greatly to noise pollution. Blue whales communicate with each other through their calls, and they're disrupted and may be changed in communication distance, frequency, intensity, and interval due to the acoustics of the ships. These changes greatly impact blue whales. Lack of alteration of communication causes habitat displacement, behavioral changes, and decreasing in mating ability as well. It's so sad to think about declines in blue whale populations. Maybe to get the mood up, we can tell them about some conservation efforts. Great idea. And maybe even before that, we can have a quick break where we hear from a listener. In today's question from a listener, we're going to be hearing a question from Katie Farmer, a comprehensive science major at Villanova who wants to know more about environmental science, blue whales, and conservation. Welcome to the studio, Katie Farmer. How are you today? Hi, Maddie Squared. Well, I'm doing okay, but I'm feeling a little sad about all the threats that blue whales have to face. Yeah, it is sad. It's hard to believe that such a huge animal can be threatened by things like fishing nets. Can entanglement in nets kill them? It seems like they would be able to break free because of their size. That's a great question, Katie. Blue whales can get caught in nets called gill nets, which are nets that have extremely large extension into the ocean with a goal of catching a ton of fish by catching their gills. These nets are very problematic in terms of bycatch of large marine mammals such as blue whales. According to Noah, although entanglement may not kill blue whales, the net may get the net stuck around their necks, mouths, and flippers. Nets that stay stuck to whales can prevent them from feeding, may constrict growth, or could cause infection. Also, if whales have to drag the nets and gear around while migrating and feeding, it may lead to extreme fatigue. Overall, although blue whale entanglement isn't a super common problem, when it does happen, it can be fatal or at least extremely detrimental. That's why conservation efforts are important. If nets that are less dangerous are used or fishing is banned in whale migration paths, entanglement may be prevented. Oh, wow. Got it. Thanks for all the information. Conservation methods are more important than I thought. Yep, and that leads us into our next segment, specifically about these conservation methods. It might seem like we are taking the approach of doom and gloom to tell you about blue whales, but it's important to leave you with some positivity. Let's move on to talking about current conservation efforts to help the blue whale population stay where it's at and not drop even more than it has in the past. To start off, it's important to note that while technology has made it easier for more efficient whaling, Technological advances have not all been bad for all whales, as some technology is super important for conservation. That's right. Being able to monitor stressors in blue whale habitats plays a huge role in conservation. Tracking whale migration patterns and better understanding their communication makes conservation a little bit easier. Earlier in the podcast, we talked about whaling and how much of a problem it used to be. While legal whaling still occurs, efforts to stop whaling have made a huge impact. Blue whales are now protected under the Endangered Species Act as well as the Marine Mammal Protection Act as well. While these acts are great, they cannot force people to stop illegally hunting. According to the Whale and Dolphin Conservation, in Iceland in 2018, a blue whale was killed and butchered despite an international ban on whaling blue whales. 
Additionally, Japan has continued whaling throughout recent years with the cover story of research, but according to National Geographic, in 2018, Japan exited the IWC and in 2019 resumed commercial whaling in an act of defiance. Yeah, people and countries work around these laws in many ways, and larger conservation methods must be taken in order to have an effect. That is why NOAA Fisheries and their partners are dedicated to conserving and rebuilding the blue whale population and ecosystems worldwide. NOAA works to reduce strikes and respond to dead, injured, and entangled whales. Here are some ways of, in which they do this. First, they coordinate federal and international measures to maintain international regulation of whaling for blue whales. They can also determine the blue whale taxonomy, population structure, occurrence, distribution, and range. NOAA also can estimate population size and monitor trends in abundance. Maddie, do you want to list the others? Yeah, sure. NOAA can also identify human-caused potential threats, and should they be determined to be limiting blue whale recovery, take steps to minimize their occurrence and severity. Finally, NOAA works to maximize efforts to acquire scientific information from dead, stranded, and entangled or entrapped blue whales. These are all great ideas, but Maddie and I have come up with our own method that we want to share with you guys. Instead of marine protected areas remaining static, these areas should move around the migration patterns of blue whales. Additionally, the location of shipping lanes should be based on where whales are migrating in order to avoid noise pollution and the collision between whales and ships. Combining our knowledge of migration patterns and the importance of MPAs, we would be able to greatly reduce anthropogenic harm on blue whales. One solution is not enough to tackle this issue. We must take into consideration all aspects of conservation methods and blue whale needs. We are nearing the end of our podcast, so we thought we would leave you with one more fun fact break. Welcome to the last fun fact break of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed these facts just as much as we do. This one might be my favorite fun fact yet. Maddie, did you know that whales sequester carbon? Actually, I did know that. I learned that from my Oceans and the Anthropocene class, but I don't know how much. Do you? I love that class. And yes, I do know how much. When whales die and fall to the bottom of the ocean, they take 33 tons of carbon with them. Oh, wow. That's a lot of carbon. I didn't know that. I don't even think trees take up that much. You're right. In a whale's life, which can be around 200 years, they sequester a lot more carbon than trees. In the same 200-year period, according to the UN Environmental Program, the average tree will only sequester 3% of what a whale can. So it seems like whales are pretty valuable in terms of carbon sequestration, just another reason to work around their conservation. Not only are they beautiful animals, but they also have several positive environmental impacts. Exactly. They make so many positive impacts on the environment that we don't even have time to discuss them all. But if you want to learn more, visit the UN page that I was talking about called Protecting Whales to Protect the Planet. We would like to thank you all for tuning into Whale Tales, where we hope to have taught you a little bit about the basics of blue whales. We talked about whaling, migration patterns, and threats, and then we tied it all back together with discussing conservation efforts. If you are interested in learning more about blue whales, there are plenty of websites you can visit. Some of our favorites are the International Whaling Commission, National Geographic, NOAA, and the World Wildlife Fund. Blue whales are an incredible and valuable species, and we hope you feel connected to them on a new level after listening. We believe that based on current conservation efforts and the possibility of future conservation, blue whales can be saved. We hope that in the future, the species will go from endangered to vulnerable, near threatened, or not even a concern. It takes all of us to push for the conservation of blue whales, so further educating ourselves on the species is a great place to start. We truly do believe that blue whale populations can be restored over time, and we hope you enjoyed learning about these beautiful animals. Bye!
What a great segment about blue whales. After that talk, we are certainly not feeling too blue. That podcast was full of great fun facts, and I, as cop to conservation, can't help but add one more. Did you know that blue whales have to have up to one foot thick of blubber around their body skin to, that keeps them warm in those chilly waters? Wow. Next up for our se second segment, we have Fiona and Lou here to educate us on the notorious leafy sea dragons. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Oh, oh Fish. Fish. I'm senior citizen Fishona. And I am junior scientist, marine biologist. In this episode, we'll be discussing our new favorite fishy friend, the, the leafy, leafy sea, sea dragon. dragon. <laughs> we have some burning questions about this species. We're super curious about how they're still alive, considering that they kind of just float. So for those of you who don't know, leafy sea dragons are small, ornate-looking organisms that look like a cross between a seahorse and a seaweed plant. Their main source of protection is their camouflage, which is honestly pretty impressive. They also have pretty sharp, spiny bodies. They swim using two fins that are super thin and give them the appearance of just floating. They feed on small invertebrates and slurp up their food with their snouts. <laughs> they live on seagrass and corals, but they have trouble because they don't have prehensile tails, which can be our podcast word of the week, which means that they can't hold on to coral branches like like, like seahorses. Like sea seahorses, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Ah, fish. So, Lou, as many of our listeners know, oh yeah, <laughs> you have had quite the obsession with leafy sea dragons this entire semester. Yeah. Um, can you tell the audience maybe a little bit about when you found out about these organisms and why you have formed such an attachment to them? Yeah, yeah. It's definitely my only personality trait at the moment. Um, on the first day of Ocean's Lab class, we did icebreakers, which is really fun considering that there are only 12 of us and we all know each other. Um, and we played a sea creature form of headbands mm -hmm. where you had to guess what sea creature you were, but you couldn't see it. And mine was the leafy sea dragon. And I had gotten all of the other ones in like one guess. So Dr. Chase just had to challenge me. And then I looked them up, and it was just, it was love at first sight. Yeah. Beautiful creatures. Yeah, they really are. <laughs> oh, fish. So, Lou, uh, I know we were talking about this kind of, like, before we were recording, but you mm. grew up with a betta fish. Yeah. And we were kind of talking about how everyone basically had these fish, but they require more than just, you know, a tiny little tank. Right. I feel like betta fish were such a popular pet. You know, you'd go to like a carnival and you'd win a carnival game and they'd give you a betta fish in like a plastic bag. Yeah. Because they were seen as these like really low maintenance, easy pets to have. You know, like a fish is so easy. Yeah. But then we started finding out that they need like a five gallon tank and a lot more enrichment and like maintenance than we ever thought. Right, right. And so one of the main threats of the leafy sea dragons in the past was uh, divers removing them from their natural habitat to then be kept and sold as pets. Yeah, 
it, it's just because they're the way they look like they're so pretty they're so breathtaking to look at that people would just want them to show them off basically right but these are such um almost like particular creatures yeah they're the, delicate right yeah um they're also a lot bigger than we assume they would yeah be. they're a good foot long and we both thought that they were like palm sized like a couple, like a couple inches yeah. at most but no so these these creatures genuinely cannot be just kept yeah like in captivity and i think it goes back to the conversation with like zoos and aquariums and how we like to think that we can control nature by putting it behind glass when in reality it needs a lot more maintenance and a lot more attention than we think you know all right, as you guys know, we try our hardest every week to include an audience participation question. So here we have Jake from Villanova, Pennsylvania. In just one second, he'll be connected to us, and then he'll be able to ask us a question that Fiona and I will answer about this week's topic. Hi, Jake. So what's your question you have for us today? So my girlfriend recently broke up with me. Uh, it was her birthday, and she wasn't happy with the presents that I got her. Uh, can I get her a leafy sea dragon as a present? Oh, wow. That sounds like a, a real dilemma there. Oh, my gosh, Jake. We were just talking about this. No, you cannot give her a leafy sea dragon. You cannot remove these creatures from their natural habitat. All right, now, Fiona, let's relax. Not everybody knows as much as we do about leafy sea dragons. But, Jake... Leafy sea dragons are very delicate and particular creatures. They only live in the same 100-meter vicinity their entire lives, and their main food source are invertebrates and crustaceans, um, which makes it really difficult to keep them as pets because you'd have to find their natural food source and they can't survive without it. Yeah, so you and your girlfriend will not be able to provide proper care to these creatures. And I know being gifted an animal and having it die on you, definitely not the best way to make up. So what am I supposed to do then? I don't know, man. All right, well, thanks for your help, I guess. Thank you, Jake. Everyone go to YouTube right now and search leafy sea dragon swimming because you need to witness how this thing moves i have no idea how is it how it has survived for so long considering it moves pretty much not at all it actually lives in the same 100 meter like like 100 square meter vicinity its entire life and we were researching it and we found that it has these fins that it swims with that are so thin that they're actually translucent so i don't know if they move so fast we can't see them or if they just look silly or they just like they must not have natural predators because i don't get how they would be able to escape well let's find out so about the status of leafy sea dragons, like we were talking about, there aren't actually a ton of hazards for the leafy sea dragon population. The biggest concern that comes with their population is what we had said before about divers taking them out of the ocean to sell them. It's actually unknown whether or not the leafy sea dragon has any natural predators. If so, their camouflage would be instrumental to their survival. On that note, their IUCN red list status has fluctuated between least concerned and near threatened since the 90s. 
The National Geographic cites pollution and habitat loss to be of the greatest concern, especially since their main habitats, seagrass habitats and coral reefs, are under threat. Should we call our listeners fishes? Yeah. Okay, fish. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fishies. So, as you know, Fiona and I are always bringing you guys new knowledge. So, did you know that very little is actually known about leafy sea dragon biology? You think it would be heavily studied, seeing as the sea dragon is such a popular organism. True, true. But in a 2017 study published in the Journal of Heredity, Leafy sea dragon genetic diversity was examined because there's been such a lack of knowledge about this organism's biology and genetic structure. Well, what did the study find out? So it was found that sea dragons across different areas in Australia have moderate to low genetic diversity. And just as a reminder for our listeners out there, could you tell us why genetic diversity is important? Absolutely. Genetic diversity is a key component of biodiversity and an important factor for conservation because maintaining high genetic diversity increases resilience and helps the species respond to environmental challenges. Another study regarding genetic diversity was done in 2020 by Clanton et al., Their research question had to do with the genetic distinction between weedy sea dragons, which are kind of like a sister species to the leafy sea dragon, and whether or not different genomes could reproduce together in order to continue sort of boosting the population. So, did it work? Unfortunately, it did not. It was determined that the different genomes and types of sea dragons are very distinct from each other, and not only that, but the recommendation of the scientists at the head of this study was that different genomes should be studied and monitored individually from each other. This just goes to show how unique these delicate creatures are. And also how difficult they are to properly conserve. You know what else I found out about leafy sea dragons? What? Okay, so just the other day I was reading and I found out that an adult leafy sea dragon can reach a length of 50 centimeters, which is almost 20 inches long. That's insane. That's almost two feet. That's almost two feet. That's crazy. They're a lot bigger than we originally thought they were. I thought these things were four centimeters. No, definitely. Oops. Um, Want to hear something even crazier? Of course I do. Male leafy sea dragons are the ones who become pregnant and reproduce. Just like like seahorses? Do seahorses do that? Yes, seahorses do that. <laughs> oh, fish. Did you seriously not know that? I, I had no idea. Actually, just the other day, I was reading this article done by Paul Groves for the Scientific American, actually all the way back in 1998. And here's a quote from it. Pregnant males carry the eggs for four to five weeks in cup-like indentations underneath their tails. Females initially produce the eggs, but then transfer them to the male for fertilization, incubation, and hatching. Little is known about the reproductive cycle of the leafy sea dragons. For instance, researchers are unaware how many times the sea dragons breed each year. So as you guys know, this show would not be possible without the generous donations and partnerships that we have with our sponsors. As Fiona and I speak right now, we both have a nice hot holy grounds drink next to us. What do you have today? I have a caramel latte. What about you? I have a peppermint hot chocolate. 
Ooh, warm drink. I've really been on a, on a wave with the warm drinks lately. Normally I'm a cold brew year round kind of person. I'm typically a cold brew girl. Yeah, yeah. So if you guys want to stay fueled up, stay energized, stay warm as well in this chilly December weather. head down to Holy Grounds and get yourself a nice cold brew so you can slurp it up like a leafy sea dragon with their new compostable straws. We love it when we get to see all of our sponsors contributing to sustainable practices. So just a couple years ago in 2020, the South Australian Conservation Research Divers, or SACRED for short, which I have to say is a pretty fantastic acronym. Yeah, that's fabulous. So they spent 12 months monitoring leafy sea dragon populations through scheduled dives where they observed the habits and numbers of leafy sea dragons. But this was kind of like a janky experiment. Wait, why? Because there were a ton of issues with the consistency of the divers who were mainly volunteers. The general guidelines, like the location and the duration of the dives, weren't always followed to a T. But one of the standout things that they found out is that the divers were able to actually really study the feeding habits of leafy sea dragons. And because of that, they were able to identify seagrass as the main habitat of the organisms. When you think about it, that actually makes perfect sense. Yeah. Seagrass habitats would be more geared towards the natural camouflage of leafy sea dragons um and they're not coral ovores they do feed on small invertebrates and crustaceans like mycids which gather at the edge of seagrass habitats a study done by dr josephine stiller in 2020 examined the impact of sea level rise on leafy sea dragon populations and genetic diversity in australia during the last glacial maximum which was about 20,000 years ago, the leafy sea dragon was actually 120 meters lower than they reside today. However, sea level rise has actually helped the population thrive in some ways. How so? Well, now leafy sea dragons live in areas where there is an abundance of sunlight to support their habitats. Most importantly, seagrass habitats. Dr. Stiller's team ended up finding that areas with more rapid sea level rise supported high levels of genetic diversity and greater population sizes. Let's go more into depth about the IUCN Red List since it's a very notorious source used to assess the health of different populations. Yeah, so the IUCN lists the main threats as being residential and commercial development, pollution, and biological resource use. Through coastal development efforts, soil is disturbed and can end up being runoff, which adds to sediment and nutrients in the water. It's probably also important to mention that these threats are mainly causing coastal habitat loss and degradation. I've also read that the leafy sea dragon is commonly caught as bycatch in fisheries. Yeah, the IUCN actually identifies that large numbers of the leafy sea dragon are caught by trawling fishing techniques, and whatever number survives is almost always traded to aquariums. Did you know that the leafy sea dragons became so popular amongst local divers that it ended up becoming the official fish emblem of South Australia. Wait, what? The organism became so popular in South Australia amongst recreational divers that they began harassing the species and trying to take them home as pets. 
we've talked a lot about the specific habitats of leafy sea dragons, but when we're talking about their geographical distribution, it's quite small. They really only exist along the Australian coasts and near the Great Barrier Reef because that's where their habitats are most prominent. Because of this small geographical range, the only existing legislation is protection under the Australian government where it's legal to capture, keep, and sell leafy sea dragons. They were at a time completely protected by the Australian government in the 90s because of their popularity with divers who, again, would catch them and keep them as pets. According to the IUCN, current conservation actions are categorized under an in-place area-based regional management plan. It also recognizes that the species occurs in at least one protected area, meaning it must reside in at least one marine protected area. So Fiona, we've talked at length about the biology and the ecology and the habitat and feeding habits of leafy sea dragons, but in the end, what's our expert prognosis for the future of this species? Great question, Lou. Seeing as Australia does have laws in place to protect leafy sea dragons from being captured as domestic pets, it appears that the leafy sea dragon populations should remain pretty steady, especially considering the lack of natural predators. Um, but we also do believe in continuing to work towards conserving seagrass and coral reef habitats as these are the most pressing issues when it comes to leafy sea dragon populations. So when it comes to solutions that Fiona and I recommend here on OFISH, we think that monitoring the population and continuing to look into the feeding habits and the migration and overall motion of the species is one thing that can help keep the species steady because then we can continue to assess what they might need. Enforcing this legislation that exists through the Australian government is also very important. Making and keeping it illegal to keep sea dragons as pets, making it illegal to remove the species from nature altogether, even considering bringing them to aquariums, and overall just providing holistic solutions, such as the mitigation of climate change and habitat loss, as well as mitigating sea level rise and assessing how all of these different things affect leafy sea dragon populations. Thank you guys all for listening to Fiona and I's analysis of the leafy sea dragon population. This has been episode 16, The Sensationalism of Leafy Sea Dragons. Come back next week where we'll be talking about the Anthropocene's newest marine organism, Felix Chase. Thank you guys so much again for tuning in with us this week, and we'll see you next week for another episode of Oh Fish! What an interesting section on leafy sea dragons from down under. Just like our two podcast hosts, Fiona and Lou, did you know that leafy sea dragons are exceptional storytellers? Well, of course, it's because they have long tails. Now I know that a leafy sea dragon is definitely not a good idea for a Christmas peasant and is one of the best dads in the marine world. Hi, my name is Caroline, and this is my podcast partner, Sarah. And today we will be discussing the southern bluefin tuna and how it is endangered. And 
Since we're both environmental science majors here at Villanova University, we wanted to address conservation techniques regarding this tuna and how to help. Join us as we dive into the world of the Southern Bluefin Tuna. SBT for short, or as our scientific friends call it, Thunus McCoy. We'll share some fun facts, then explore the history of the Southern Bluefin Tuna and its threats. Let's dive in. First, we'll open with some facts about the Southern Bluefin Tuna, so we have some background knowledge. Their habitat is in the open ocean, located in southern parts of the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, near Australia and Indonesia. That's a pretty cool fact. Um, also, their life expectancy is about 30 years, which I'm not sure about you, but I had no idea they could live that long. And they can even reach a size of 225 centimeters and weigh nearly 200 kilograms. That's crazy, much more than us. Yeah, that is quite a lot. Their size must be due to their extensive diet. There's some hungry dudes, I bet. I mean, do you know how much they eat? Did you know that this tuna not only eats other fish, but also crustaceans, cephalopods, and salps? Salps? What even is a salp? I had no idea what a salp was, and I had to look it up. I guess it's similar to a jellyfish. It's sort of like this long, worm-like organism. But anyways, back to the tuna, because it does need our attention and our help. You're so right. You're so right. I mean, like, for example, a 1998 study by Matsuda predicted the southern bluefin tuna population will be below 500 mature individuals within the next 100 years. 500! That's crazy. Right? Like, that's not even enough, like, for the Villanova student population. How can we survive? Exactly. So that, in addition, the IUCN red list put them at a status of endangered, which means we should really just take a look at what is causing the SBT tuna populations to deplete. Yes, definitely. They definitely need to be looked at. Also, um, our friend Al McGlanchin would like to say a couple words. He is an Australian fisher, writer, and journalist who can attest to the southern bluefin tuna depletion. Let's see what he has to say on the matter. of the species' original volume, otherwise known as biomass. By the early 90s, the southern bluefin tuna was on the road to extinction. The damage had already been done, and no one realised it. Thanks, Al. I mean, he has a cool voice, but like when he's <laughs> talking about the depletion of tuna, I kind of don't want to hear what he has to say because it's so sad. I know, exactly. He does a good job explaining it, though. So, what happened to the tuna stocks? See, that's what I'm wondering. Like, if you think about it, back in the 1960s, the annual catch globally was 80,000 tons of tuna. But now it's depleted to nearly a fourth of that number. Wow, 80,000 tons, that's, that's quite a lot. That's no no a wonder lot they're depleted today. Right? <laughs> Basically drove them nearly to extinct- extinction. So, yes, its population sizes have greatly decreased compared to historical levels. Here's a fun term that we've talked about. Um, I think that sounds like shifting baselines that we <laughs> learned in our oceans class. Yes, definitely. So why did the baseline shift? What's the history behind it? Let's unpack it. Unpack it, we will. So until the early 1980s, this fish was primarily only really used for canning tuna. 
That makes sense. I mean, tuna fish is pretty popular. Yeah, have you ever had canned tuna? Um, I, I, I have, actually. Oh, how was it? It's, it's not too bad. I, right. I wouldn't say it's my favorite food. So you're... You were <laughs> I was, I helping was, with the depletion of this fish. Yes, I was s- sadly contributing to its depletion and its endangerment. Which well, that's okay, because today <laughs> we're going to learn about how to help. Yes, so canning tuna was the primary cause. Um, but, however, today that has gone down. Um, actually, the, the current market for these fish is in Japan, and they are using them for sashimi which I didn't know what that was, but apparently it's a Japanese delicacy consisting of fresh raw fish cut into pieces, which I don't know about you, but uh, I'm not a big fan of sushi, so I don't think I would like this. Well, I do love sushi, actually. I just had some when I went home for break, and it was really good. But now that we're talking about it, it's making me really hungry, and I could 100% go for some sushi right now. Well, it might not have sushi, but I'm pretty sure today's sponsor could help you with your hunger. Are you a hungry science student at Villanova? Do you ever run late in the morning and forget your morning coffee before your lecture in Mendel? And are you jealous of your business friends in Bartley, who not only have their own holy grounds, but also their own dining area? Well, if you said yes to any of these questions, today's sponsor is here for you. Get coffee, muffins, pretzels, iced tea, whatever your heart desires at Mendel's newest edition. It's very own Holy Grounds! Oh my gosh, I can't believe we are finally getting one. I feel like we've been asking for so long For so long, and every single year Bartley gets new renovations and we just want coffee. Exactly. Bartley gets all the attention here on campus, but... It's more important things than just business. Exactly. We're saving the environment out here. I know. <laughs> and we're doing it powered by Holy Grounds. Yes. And that is coming soon to the ground floor. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for sponsoring today's podcast, Holy Grounds. Now that we've got our cup of coffee, let's get back into the tuna. How do we conserve them? You see, the original problem with the management of the southern bluefin tuna was the annual total allowable catches. Before 1985, there were no limits on how many tunas could be fished. Wow, that's quite crazy. There's no, no rules at all. <laughs> Just out there fishing whatever right? they want. So because of this, it caused a tragedy of the commons. Now, Caroline, could you possibly remind our listeners what tragedy of the commons means? Of course. So basically, With no regulations, fishers would deplete fish populations at an extremely fast rate so that their competitors wouldn't get fish more than them. I mean, makes sense. Every fisherman wants to get the most amount of fish they can get. And if there's no regulations, might as well. Right. However, this does have a negative effect. It caused a reversed baby boom effect. Whoa, whoa. Reverse baby boom effect? Did I hear you right? Yep. What does that mean? Let me explain. So... As Maury A. L. 2001 explains, the number of mature southern bluefin tuna was small during the 1980s because of overfishing. Thus, the number of eggs that were spawned by these mature southern bluefin tuna was small in these years, and when these small numbers of immature fish became mature, the population will decrease again. We call this effect the inverse baby boom effect. Okay, so it's like when baby boomers were all born, 
in the United States history, but it's like the reverse. Exactly. Because the population's getting smaller. Yes. That makes sense. That sounds pretty catastrophic. So to protect the natural stocks that were already depleting with this inverse baby boom effect, management had to be implemented. We just had to do something about it. Exactly. I mean, we couldn't couldn't let these disappear. Exactly. So in 1994, there was a formation of the Commission for the Conservation of Southern Bluefin Tuna, or CCSBT for short. I mean, that sounds like a club I want to be part of. <laughs> exactly. I don't know about you. I want to join it. Right. So this commission set total allowable catches, set regulatory objectives, they provide forums for discussion, they make decisions to implement fish, fishery management, and they also conduct some scientific research. And, you know, I love my scientific research here. <laughs> yeah, me too. Wow, that... That commission quite does a lot. They do. Lots so, of responsibility. Talking about research, a study done by Maury Ayal in 2001, which we referred to earlier, looked at the recovery plan for the southern bluefin tuna and had a target of recovering them to the 1980 level by 2020. Talking about going back to that shifting baseline effect. Oh, right. I know Dr. Chase <laughs> loves talking about shifting baseline, so we couldn't pass up an opportunity to talk about that. Exactly. And actually, under the CCSBT, countries like Australia, New Zealand, and Japan, by the way, I want to go to all these places, they sound amazing, not only because of their prominence in the tuna world, but also they're doing something positive. Um, And what they're doing is they're determining annually the global total allowable catch and also individual catch quotas for each of these countries. Um, And that was found in study in 2000 found by Campbell et al. Wow, yeah. These countries definitely are doing a lot. And um, not just tuna-wise, conservation-wise. Like, they they have a lot of coral reef oh, conservation. You're right, riders. Golden Triangle, if yeah. you will. You know? <laughs> um, do you know any information, possibly, about um, like more recent total allowable catches that they've set? Or Yeah, so I think, for example, in 2018-2020, the global total allowable catch or it's also referred to as the TAC for the southern bluefin tuna, is set at 17,647 tons, according to a study done by Tracy 2020. And I'm pretty sure I checked the IUCN Red List website, and I think that um, same amount, the 17,647 that you mentioned earlier, is the same that they're going to use for 2021 through 2023. Wow. So, clearly that is a good number. Yeah, so I, guess, I guess it's working. If you're doing the lottery, I don't know how the lottery works, but maybe you can use 17,647 as your number. Yeah. I don't know if that's maybe how it works. but Lucky number. It does seem to be a lucky number. Um, and we got to utilize that luck because the vast migration patterns of the southern bluefin tuna include their traveling across the Pacific, Indian, and even Atlantic Oceans. So... With that wide of a range across the globe, it's critical that we follow these global quotas so that we can protect the tuna worldwide, like Pitbull, Mr. International, or Mr. Worldwide. Maybe he could write a song. Maybe that would be one of our science communication conservation methods. Yeah, we could get songwriting into this, get some celebrities. So if anyone listening has any um, connections with Pitbull, I would... (laughs) Very much appreciate it if you could mention our podcast. Yeah, if you could make a little um, song worldwide. Yes, like a, a little disc- mashup. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and Pitbull will help us save the tuna. 
Anyways, so these improvements of quotas must be why the IUCN Red List says southern bluefin tuna populations are increasing because they are, in fact, if you look on the, the IUCN Red, Red List uh, website, they, they are going up. They're not depleting, which is good. That is very good because I was, I was getting scared for our, our little tuna guys. Um, but if you say they're increasing, that makes me very happy. Um, it means that not only does conservation work, but so do quotas and so does politics. So that can give us some hope that we are able to make change and humans are the future of the ocean and we can do stuff about it. Yes, lots of, lots of positive stuff going on and, and these quotas are a great start. However, the fact of the matter is that the southern bluefin tuna is still endangered. So we, we can't forget that because if we forget about it, then we're just going to think they're okay and they can further deplete, which we don't want to go backwards. You are so right. Um, and go backwards, we will not, if I have anything to say about it. And also, if CCSBT, our little club from earlier, haven't mm-hmm. forgotten about them, they, <laughs> nope. they don't want that to happen either. So mm-hmm. they've got some conservation methods of their own. Um, and they report that some of their methods include having requirements for fleets to monitor and submit data that show compliance with TACs. So the TACs are there, but what's, what, what does it matter if no one follows it? So they make sure that people follow it by submitting data of their fish catch. Um, and they also develop some scientific observer programs so we can get more science and get more data on the fish and their movement patterns. Um, and they also monitor farm operations with aquaculture. Um, and they also do inspections at the ports of catches to make sure that there's no funny business going on. Exactly. It sounds like CCSBT is really on it and really exactly. making sure we're holding these fishermen accountable. I gotta look and see if they have any job openings. I know, I mean. exactly. <laughs> it could be a very fun job. Right? If you like the smell of fish, then. Oh, is. yeah. I, I'll certainly look into it. <laughs> yeah. So, despite these method, methods, there are still challenges. You mean we're not just gonna get off easy? Fortunately, no. Well, 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 let's unpack some of these challenges. So their CCSBT does have all of these monitoring programs, but unfortunately it's not, um, as Dr. Chase would say, the silver bullet. Um, there are also many ways that people are sneaking by. So there are illegal operations um, going on that just don't even care about any of the rules and just don't comply with any of the rules. And there's also the people that are false reporting their fish catch because we have the TACs, total allowable catches, but sometimes people will report less, that they caught less, even though they caught more, so that they can comply with the law, but actually the actual amount of fish are still depleting because they're not reporting the correct numbers. Which really is too bad, and that actually reminds me of um, a film I watched uh, on Netflix called Seaspiracy. It's a great film. I think we should all watch it. Um, what, what did it entail? So basically it was about, um, so the director, his name was Ali, he went around and he was looking at the ocean and basically looking at like what we're talking about, about like fish stocks and how what we recently just mentioned, like illegal operations. And he found out that Japan was, um, when they were fishing these tuna and other fish as well, they also were killing dolphins and whales. They were basically blaming them as the scapegoat because I mean, we're like humans are like the greatest depletion of the tuna, but they're using 
these dolphins um, as a scapegoat to say like they were the main cause oh, and no. killing all these dolphins. It was, it was really horrible. That is um, awful, especially yeah. after all they do for us. Like we learned with the whales that sequester carbon yeah. and provide nutrients for phytoplankton. Like, exactly. We can't be blaming them. They're our homies. I know. So he, he tried to bring attention to this because that's one of the best communication efforts out there with using a film and it was a great film but um and he also talked about not only japan but have you ever seen like on the tuna can labels like the dolphin safe yes i have seen those, yeah actually. so he actually um looked into that more and found out that these like organizations that were supporting this found out that the illegal operations were actually going on with the people that run, like, the Dolphin Safe label. Oh, no. So you're meaning the label on it was just fake and didn't actually mean that they were Dolphin Safe? Yeah, it was crazy. I, I couldn't believe it myself. Um, but a lot of it, it had to do with, like, the money and where all of that was going. So that's a whole another issue that we could spend another segment talking about. But this is true. Just, I thought Sea Spiracy was a great movie. Um, that talked about the ocean and what we've been talking about with depleting fish stocks and right. how important sustainable fishing is. I really like how you could relate that to our conversation today because it's so relevant and it just shows that, you know, you're just scrolling through Netflix and it relates to science yeah. and you can learn something new from it. Yeah, exactly. So, as we mentioned, increased awareness and more efficient monitoring must be done in order to combat these risks of these tuna. Yeah, I agree. A bunch of efforts have been made, yes, that's true, but we must continue with our efforts and keep pushing the boundaries even further, so, like having more monitoring, having, making sure our data is accurate, and making sure that the number of total allowable catch that we set is actually working. Um, so we have to keep pushing on with these so that the tuna do not go extinct. Exactly. Now is not the time to back off. And I think as long as people talk about them, and continue to raise awareness because just simply educating people on issues like these can have a positive and lasting effect. I hope our podcast today has a positive lasting effect on all of our listeners because I feel so passionately about these tuna Me as and well. also about science communication because communication is so important in the world of science and learning how to effectively take the information that we learn and translate it to the public so that they can understand what's happening in the world is like so important especially with all the different crisis is going on we need to just educate people as much as possible so that they know what is going on and what efforts need to be done to save the fish that's a very great point sarah and i i completely agree with you and couldn't have said it better myself oh stop it <laughs> well so anyways i think we have talked about tuna here enough today but if you do want to learn more about the southern bluefin tuna and i encourage you to do so i would check out um the iucn redlist website at iucnredlist.org I don't know about you, but I will certainly be keeping an eye on their status. Me too. So today, we talked about the history and developing legislation surrounding the southern bluefin tuna. With increased science communication and information on the southern bluefin tunas, we can all come together to save them. That sounds like a plan to me. So we can continue eating tuna fish. Woo! Wow. Some really eye-opening information about SBT populations and their threats. Our podcast hosts spoke about how big tuna get and how much they weigh at adulthood. In fact, it's really easy to weigh tuna because they have their own scales. <laughs> Another ocean pun for you listeners out there.
Thank you for that segment, Caroline and Sarah, for and for educating us on the southern bluefin tuna populations and for your interesting facts and future recommendations for this species in terms of sustainable fishing and science communication in our world. Up next, we have a segment called Southern Elephant Fields by Jake and Will. Take it away, Will and Jake. Hey everybody, my name is Jake Walton and I'm here with my co-host Will Eeks. Hey guys. Say Will, got a question for you. What's the only thing that can out-rebound Wilt Chamberlain? Hmm, I don't know, but not Eric Dixon. That's a good one, but no. I'm talking about southern elephant seal populations after a hundred years of being overexploited. <laughs> That's a great introduction to today's episode of Tales of Marine Conservation, where we will be talking about the Naranga leonina, better known as the Southern Elephant Seal. We'll be covering the top six things you need to know about this majestic beast. And hopefully, by the end of this podcast, you'll be able to spread some of the knowledge that you learned here today on Tales of Marine Conservation. We will be covering topics such as its biology, habitat, history, population changes, and conservation methods to help protect this population as we move into the future. We also have a special guest lined up, so stay tuned. Today's episode is sponsored by Lovelace. Lovelace and 2MC are not associated in any way. This publication is comprehended by 2MC for private use of our listeners and any other publication without our consent is permitted. So, as we said, we're going to be covering some important facts about the Southern Elephant Seal. And Will, I'll give you a guess as to why they got that name. Hmm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say they have huge ears like an elephant. Close, but not quite. They actually resemble an elephant in the only other way that matters, which is their extremely large stature and their huge noses. So the males can actually reach an astonishing weight of 8,000 pounds while their female counterparts reach a meager 2,000 in comparison. Why would a seal need an elephant-like nose? Well, this nose, also called the proboscis, is a distinguishing feature of male elephant seals, and it's used to express their dominance during the mating season, which we'll cover a bit later. But our buddies can inflate their giant noses up to 50 centimeters long and use this to produce extremely loud, bellowing grunts and other beautiful sounds to both woo females and deter other males. Oh, so you're saying the only thing I have to do to get a girl to like me is grunt and scream louder than all the other guys. Well, I wouldn't suggest it, but you do that and get back to me with your results. All right. So we know they're extremely large. How do they keep themselves full and fat enough to survive the harsh South Southern Antarctica winters? Well, I'm glad you asked because it's actually very interesting. Southern elephant seals are considered open ocean predators, meaning they only eat while they're out at sea. They feast on large fish and squids, so they have to dive very deep into the waters to find them. How deep are we talking about? So usually they dive for around 40 minutes at a depth of about a kilometer, but they've been recorded to reach depths of over two kilometers and stay underwater for two hours in search of the best meals. Two hours for a meal? That seems a bit excessive. 
Not when you're the largest carnivorin on the planet. You mean carnivore, right? Nope. Carnivorin. That means hairy carnivore. So just to emphasize how big they are, they're actually six times larger than the, than the largest carnivore on land, which is the polar bear. So, Jake, you wouldn't happen to know where they get all this food, would you? You know, it is amazing how our brains work because I was just going to get into their habitat. Wow. Would you look at that? It's almost like we're reading this right off a script. Well, we shouldn't tell the listeners that. So, according to some research done by Chua et al., southern elephant seals have a circumpolar distribution and haul out twice a year on sub-Antarctic islands to breed and to molt. Circumpolar? Molt? What do all these big words mean? Well, circumpolar means their geographical range is specifically around the poles. And for our southern elephant seals, you guessed it, they hang out near the South Pole. They do all of their hunting in the Antarctic waters near the continental shelf. Now, molting means that they shed their hair or fur, and this only occurs when they're on land. So, do they molt while they're chilling out on the ice shelves? No. During their trips to the islands where they take part in breeding, they also do their molting process. During these times, they sit out on a beach all day long, hardly doing anything. Nothing at all? Nothing at all. It has been documented that they hardly even breathe, just so they can conserve enough energy. Wow, that is a whole new level of lazy. It sure is. So there are three main breeding stocks. One on the South Georgia Island, one on the Kerguelen Island, and one on the Mercury Island. So they really are all over the place down there. Yes, they are. But like I said, they spend most of their time out at sea. However, during these trips to and from their breeding grounds, they can cover a wide area of the ocean. Females usually follow their prey wherever it'll take them, which can lead them thousands of kilometers away. But males tend to stay on a more familiar path, and they hardly ever venture from that. So you're telling me they can be found pretty much anywhere where the water is down near the South Pole. I feel like that's a lot of land and sea that should be protected. Well, we'll cover that a little later in the episode, but yes, there is a lot of effort that goes into protecting our enormous friends. Oh, would you look at that. Now it's time we take a quick break to hear about our biggest sponsor, Lovelace. Do you have a question you can't seem to answer? Do you have no connection to a sacred talisman? Well, I've got the answer for you. Our friend, Lovelace. Lovelace is a rockhopper penguin, wise and all-knowing guru who, who will answer any question you have. He was bestowed a sacred talisman from the mystic beings which gives him the power to answer life's biggest questions. All you have to pay is a single love stone per question, and Lovelace will give the answer to your problem. Support Lovelace, because he supports us. All right, we are back, and for our next section, we're going to cover breeding habits of the southern elephant seal. And now, for the moment you've been waiting for, Jake, give us a drum roll. We are going live with Brian the Beachmaster, the alpha male of a southern island harem as he attempts to lure in some ladies for breeding season. <laughs> wow, that, that just sounds like a giant burp off between old men. But Jake, as we spoke about earlier, 
the noses are helping to make that sound louder for breeding, right? God, they are majestic. <laughs> yes. The purpose of their proboscis is to vocalize their dominance to both females and competing males. That's pretty wild. Yes, they are wild animals. So is there just one alpha male or does Brian have to compete with others? So typically, southern elephant seals will have harems where a dominant male breeds with all the females. But in some cases, there will be a non-dominant male that breeds with a female. For a study published in Marine Mammal Science, Kapang et al., about 92% of breeding occurred within a harem or a single male breeding with all the females as compared to only 8% of breeding within a single mating pale. Plus, another study found that around 72% of non-dominant males never bred their entire life. Wow. I guess Brian does have some competition then. He does. And that's why he's covered in scars, as the males will fight to protect their harem from rival males and will bite each other while smashing their giant bodies together, while also making some of those crazy noises we just witnessed. So that seems like very intense fighting. Do they ever kill each other? No, it is in fact extremely rare that a fight ends with a death. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, me too. So you mentioned calling Brian the Beachmaster. Is that his given name or is he just self-absorbed? So actually, Beachmaster is a name given to the alpha males who run their harem, with each harem having up to about 100 females, give or take. Wow, 100 ladies? I can barely deal with one. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the life of alpha male southern elephant seals. All right, now we're going to discuss the history of the population of southern elephant seals. So, Will, I've heard southern elephant seals used to be hunted. Is that true? Yes, it is. They were hunted to near extinction throughout the 18th and 19th centuries especially on South Georgia Island, which happens to now have the highest population of southern elephant seals. So elephant seals must taste delicious then, right? I don't know. I've never tried it. But they were actually not hunted for their meat. So does that mean they were hunted for their giant noses instead? That's a good guess. But no, they were hunted for their blubber or their fat, which makes up about a third of their weight. Hmm, that sounds familiar. Anyways, what was the blubber used for? Typically, it was used for machine oil or heat lamp fuel. I thought machines used petroleum oil. Well, they do now, but before petroleum was widespread, elephant seal blubber was a popular oil. Wow, we really have a lot of thanks to give to petroleum. Yeah, good one, Jake. So is that the only reason populations rebounded? Well, no. The hunting of them was completely banned, and we'll dive a little deeper into that later in today's episode. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah. Hunting is still banned since 1964, and from 1910 to 1964, there was a permit system. But as we brought up earlier, there's no market for elephant seals or any of their products. So all I'm hearing is good news. Hopefully their protection continues into the future. I agree. So before we close out this topic, we're getting a question from a listener, at Felix Chase. Felix has asked us about the legality of the hunting in the 18th and 19th centuries. Specifically, was there poaching going on or was hunting to near extinction completely legal? That's a great question, Felix. The hunting was completely legal as conservation efforts were not common in that time. You're right. That was a great question. So thank you for that one, Felix. And as a reminder to our listeners, submit any questions you have to our Twitter 
at Tales of MC, and we will answer them if we can. So next, you're going to look at current population trends of the southern elephant seal. And as we spoke of before, the population of the southern elephant seal almost went extinct, but managed to recover after a change of policies and a change in resources. Well, that's good news. So how's their population doing right now? Well, the International Union for Conservation and Nature lists them as least concerned, but this is not the full story. How is that not the full story? Isn't the IUCN a pretty accurate database? Yes, it absolutely is. But even with southern elephant seals being of least concern, two of the three major colonies are in decline, unfortunately. I know we covered this earlier, but could you remind me where the three major colonies are? As simple as it sounds, there is a subcolony in the southern portion of three of our oceans. In the Indian Ocean, we have the Kerguelen colony. In the Atlantic, there is the South Georgia colony. And in the Pacific, there is the Macro colony. Oh, yes, that's right. So which of the three are decreasing? The largest subcolony in the South Atlantic is increasing, South Georgia Island, while the Southern Indian and Southern Pacific populations are decreasing. So what's causing these populations to decrease? Well, per a study posted in the Mammal Review, the researchers listed nine possible reasons for population decline. Those reasons being human disturbance, male paucity, fisheries interactions, juvenile predation, population overshoot, pandemic diseases, interspecific competition, and environmental change. Hmm. Let me guess. Environmental change was the biggest contributor? Yep, you're right. As with everything these days, environmental change is causing population declines, specifically global warming causing a decrease in sea ice and a decrease in food populations for the seals. Okay, well, personally, that last little bit has me feeling down in the dumps. So let's turn things around and at least attempt to end on a high note. I know, I'm sorry, but the people need to hear the truth about what's going on. So what do you have in mind to end on a positive note? Well, it only makes sense to talk about the future of these majestic creatures. You know, like what conservation methods we need to implement, how we're already protecting them, and efforts made to be sure they stay on a good course. So with that, let's get started. Like Will said, our SEALs are considered to be in the least concerned category of the IUCN Red List. And after all that over-exploitation in the 19th century, legislation decided to turn things around. Don't they live in Antarctica? What government controls that? Because they spend most of their time down there, hunting of these seals below the 60 degrees south latitude mark has been banned and enforced by law. So this line on our map encompasses every part of Antarctica. And this was part of the Convention for the Conservation of Antarctic Seals, which is part of the Antarctic Treaty System. So the other parts of the year, when they're on the beaches, what happens then? Well. Their breeding sites are probably the most important areas to protect. So many of the countries that have these prominent breeding sites implemented their own actions, such as the Falkland Islands Dependencies Conservation Ordinance, which provides protection on the South Sandwich and South Georgia Islands. Similarly, the Prince Edward Islands are protected due to their status as a natural reserve. So we got the whole Antarctic and their breeding grounds covered. So we accomplished protecting them, right? Not quite. Well, not yet at least. Southern elephant seals mainly feed on fish and squid, but also fill up on krill and sharks. And according to a research recorded by Kikavo et al., 
Fisheries in the Antarctic have been fishing for three of those four things for decades, and the overexploitation of these fishes can prove to be deadly to those that feed on them. So you're saying we are taking all of their food right out of their mouths? Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying, Will. Well, it seems like the next step we need to take is protecting their food, and we'll have a pretty solid grasp on the survival in their future. Well, we can only hope it'll be that easy. So, Hey, Jake, earlier I mentioned sea ice loss and climate change. Could you talk about that for us? Absolutely. Outside of direct methods of protecting the southern elephant seal, the next step is just to reduce climate change, which in general will bring about only good things for all of Earth's ecosystems. See, sea ice loss is detrimental to the survival of seals, as they use this ice as feeding grounds and as a home for the majority of the year. See, look at that, Will. I did help, help us end on a good note. Yes, you did. But that's all the time we have here today. But I hope you enjoyed the talk. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And if you're now enthralled with elephant seals, you can learn more and get involved at nationalgeographic.com. Yes. Thank you all for listening in today. And hopefully you all learned a little something more and maybe even fell in love with the southern elephant seal. Until next time on Tales of Marine Conservation. Brian, the Beachmaster indeed. Well, take it from Jake and Will on the dating habits of southern elephant seals, their history, and population dynamics. So here's my joke related to this segment. What's gray and has a trunk? A seal on holiday, or maybe just a regular elephant seal. Up next, we are going to hear about the charismatic megafauna of green sea turtles. Hosts Megan and Brendan are going to be sharing the shellarious wonders of sea turtles. Here we go, Brendan and Megan. Uh, what do you call a famous sea turtle? I don't know. What? A celebrity. <laughs> Hi listeners, welcome to our podcast called Crush's Corner, where we talk about the beloved sea turtle. We are your hosts, Brendan Cottingham. And Megan Gaughan. We are both students studying environmental science at Villanova University. Uh, thank you for being here with us today to learn more about this species. Fun fact about sea turtles. Did you know that the green sea turtle gets their name from the color of their fat, not the color of their shell? When prepared correctly, the fatty bits of the turtle in the turtle soup are green. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. So interesting. Well, as you know, today we are going to be talking about everyone's favorite marine species, the green sea turtle. Many people are familiar with this species because of Crush, the laid-back surfer dude sea turtle that helps Marlin catch the East Australian current in the movie Finding Nemo. Yeah, definitely. I love Crush. I think Crush really put sea turtles on the map. They were my favorite animal growing up, and I'm sure that's the case for a lot of other people as well. Um, and I think they've really become the poster child for marine endangered species too, kind of at the forefront of some of the movements towards reducing pollution. Yes, for sure. 
The movement towards avoiding single-use plastic straws because of the negative impacts on sea turtles is one of the first things that come to mind when I think of the oceans. Speaking of that, we have to put an important myth to rest. Despite popular belief, as of 2018, plastic straws only accounted for less than 0.25% of the 8 million tons of plastic found in the oceans, according to a National Geographic article. Uh, fishing industry equipment and debris, on the other hand, accounts for over 80%. So as important as it is to reduce consumption of plastic straws and single-use plastic in general to protect green sea turtles, I think that this narrative tends to draw attention away from some of the other threats that may be more pressing. Yes, absolutely. We will get into some of these threats a little later in our episode today. It is also so important that we dispel some of these misconceptions about threats to turtles and marine ecosystems in general, so that we can do our part and protect these species that have been an important part of human life for a long time. Right. And the relationship between sea turtles and humans really goes back many years. Uh, even before sea turtles quote unquote claim to fame following the release of Finding Nemo and the plastic straw epidemic. Oh, really? How so? Well, according to Witzel et al., catching turtles was actually a really important part of the development of fisheries in the United States. His publication called The Origin, Evolution, and Demise of the U.S. Sea Turtle Fisheries explains that turtling was one of the first commercial fish fisheries in the southeastern U.S. If you think about it, it's relatively easy and inexpensive to go out onto a deserted beach and collect sea turtle eggs, which made it an appealing industry at the time. Right, and the green sea turtle especially was sought after for turtle soup as well. Witzel et al. says that the turtle was so flavorful and the fatty tissue found under the shell was dried and used to make turtle soup that was extremely popular with European royalty in the 18th and 19th centuries. Yeah, in a 1952 article by Tom Harrison, he actually uses the term green and edible turtle interchangeably. Oh wow, have you ever tried turtle soup before? No, and I don't plan on it. Hunting and selling of sea turtle meat is actually banned in the United States. Oh, really? Well then, I guess we won't be trying that anytime soon. Did you know that green sea turtles are the only herbivore sea turtles? Oh no, I didn't know that, but that's really cool. What do they eat compared to other species of turtles? Mainly algae and seagrasses. Other species of turtles eat a huge variety of things, including shrimp, jellyfish, sea cucumbers, and crabs. Oh, wow. Another interesting thing about green sea turtles is how migratory they are, which we sort of get to see in Finding Nemo with the EAC. According to the IUCN, green sea turtle nesting occurs in more than 80 countries worldwide, and they're believed to live in the coastal waters of more than 140 countries. Oh, wow. Are these countries all over the world, or are they in one specific location? Well, they tend to be distributed throughout tropical and subtropical waters, and we believe that these turtles migrate to different areas during different stages of their maturity and development. So we believe that the hatchlings float along oceanic currents for several years before they migrate to seagrass or algae-rich habitats where they stay until they reach maturity. Then they migrate between foraging grounds, nesting grounds, and through the oceanic zones. They often cover thousands of kilometers throughout their lifetimes. I had no idea they moved around so much in their lifetimes. That's crazy. And like we mentioned before, green sea turtles have an official endangered status in the IUCN red list of threatened species. It was last assessed in April of 2004, though, so it definitely needs updating. Yeah, and green sea turtles have become endangered for several different reasons, but for the purposes of our episode today, we want to address two big ones. The first threat is tourism and recreation. Basically, direct human interaction with sea turtles and their environment, especially on the beaches where turtles lay their eggs, is very detrimental to their survival. 
According to the National Academy Press, all life stages of sea turtles are susceptible to human-induced mortality, direct human manipulations such as beach armoring, beach nourishment, beach lighting, and beach cleaning can reduce the survival of eggs and hatchlings in and on their beaches. The presence of humans on the beach, on foot, or in vehicles can adversely affect nesting, buried eggs, and emerging hatchlings. Oh, wow. So beach cleaning can actually negatively impact sea turtles? That's right. It sounds a little counterintuitive, I know. But human presence on beaches, even if they're doing something positive, like a beach cleanup, can adversely affect turtles. It complicates things, for sure. Yeah, definitely. The second threat is one that we both agree is more severe than many of the others, uh, which is fishing and harvesting of aquatic resources. The fishing industry has been adversely impacting turtle populations for over 100 years now. According to Kasparik et al. in Egypt, green sea turtles have been subject to direct human exploitation for human consumption. So even though this is banned in some areas, it still happens, whether legally or not, and poses a major threat to the turtle populations. Absolutely. And even indirectly, the fishing industry impacts turtles as bycatch. Bycatch, for those of you who don't know, is the accidental capture of non-target species. Yes, thank you. And according to the National Academy Press, the most important human-associated source of mortality for turtles is incidental capture in ship shrimp trawls. They actually state this accounts for more deaths than all human activities combined, which is really devastating. Wow, that is devastating. The National Academy Press also notes some other human activities that impact turtles. These include other trawl fishing practices that use traps, gill nets and long lines, and entanglement in lost or discarded fishing gear and debris, dredging, and boat collisions. All of these practices are associated with the fishing industry. Another thing that really stood out to me from this National Academy Press article is one statistic about trawling time and how sea turtle bycatch is impacted by it. They say that the proportion of dead and comatose turtles in shrimp trawling nets went from very few at 40 minutes to about 70% at 90 minutes. This is a huge difference and really points to the importance of limits on trawling that could potentially keep towing durations to a minimum. We want to take a quick moment to thank the sponsor of this episode of Crush's Corner, Villanova's Office of Health Promotion. Does upcoming ocean finals have the feeling of being stressed? Unwind with Pet Therapy, an event put on by the Office of Health Promotion, Wednesday, December 7th, 12 to 1 p.m. in Vasey, and Tuesday the 13th in 11 to 1 in Falvey. Take a break from your studying and hang out with some furry friends. Oh, that's great. I'll definitely be there. Me too. Okay, and we are back. We left off talking about some of the stressors and threats faced by green sea turtle populations. Right. The two major threats we mentioned are tourism and recreation and the fishing industry. But now that we've gone all doom and gloom on you listeners, we want to shine a light on some of the management, recovery, and conservation strategies out there to protect and restore green sea turtle populations. Yes, absolutely. We get that it's sometimes discouraging to hear about all the ways that human activities have hurt sea turtles, but there are things being done to combat this. For one thing, there have been improvements in legislation to protect sea turtles. For example, legislation has already been passed in certain parts of the country and the world. 
it's actually illegal in the continental United States and Hawaii to have any buying or selling of sea turtle based products. And national law protects all sea turtle eggs, hatchlings and nesting adults on all Palauan beaches at all times. Didn't we mention earlier that turtle soup is illegal in the U.S. for this very reason? Yes, exactly. And actually, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has had plans for recovery strategies for sea turtles across the United States and its territories since 2004. That's great news. What are some of the strategies within this plan? Well, there's many of them. They break it up into some different categories of strategies. So the first category is nesting environment, where we can target the nesting environment by protecting and managing sea turtles on nesting beaches. Their strategies are to protect and manage turtles by increasing enforcement of turtle protection laws to reduce directed take of turtles, ensuring coastal construction doesn't disrupt nesting and hatching, preventing animals from preying on nests, ensuring hatchlings and nesting females don't get harmed by artificial lighting by quantifying the effects and implementing, enforcing, and evaluating light re regulations. Basically, turtles can get confused sometimes thinking that artificial lighting like streetlights are actually the moon and they walk into oncoming traffic and towards parking lots thinking that they are walking in the direction of the ocean. Wow, that's really sad. I'm glad that steps are being taken to try and target that. Other nesting strategies are to prevent seawalls, reverments, sandbags, jetties, and breakwaters from degradating nesting habitats, remove sand and coral rubble from nesting beaches and stop mining, make beach landscape guidelines that recommend only planting native plants and not removing stabilized beach vegetation, maintaining good nesting habitat by keeping beach replenishment projects in mind, use non-mechanical beach cleaning methods, and prohibiting cars from driving on beaches with nests. Wow, we know that that's a lot of strategies, but they are definitely all super important in ensuring that enough eggs survive to hatch and keep populations from declining rapidly. Do we know if having these kinds of restrictions actually makes a difference? Well, yes, actually. According to a study done by Dobbs K in 2007, protection in no-take zones increased under the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park zoning plan established in 2003 and showed an increase of nesting habitats. No-take zones, for those of you who may not know, are areas where removing or destroying natural resources is prohibited. Right, thank you. So in the Great Barrier Reef, their plan established in 2003 increased protection in these zones and increased nesting habitats, which is really promising. Totally. The next section of NOAA's plan focuses on protecting and managing green turtle populations in marine habitats and foraging habitats. Some of these strategies outlined in this section include enhancing and maintaining law enforcement efforts to reduce illegal exploitation and eliminating directed take of turtles through public education and awareness, formulating and implementing measures to reduce or eliminate persistent debris and sources of entanglement in the marine environment, requiring commercial and recreational fisheries to monitor and reduce incidental mortality, making sure fishermen and divers don't ground their boats, anchor them, or trample seagrass beds because these are important habitats to sea turtles, and keeping reefs, algal, and seagrass habitats clean by preventing pollution. And lastly, regulating practices like dredging and dynamite fishing that are destroying sea turtle habitats. Wow. That's a lot of information. It is, but it's vital that we target all sorts of different threats if we want to effectively protect turtles.
I agree. The action plan also notes that we must ensure proper care of sea turtles in captivity. This includes things like proper diet, water quality, tank size, and rehabilitation. That is so important. There is a lot of potential for education and awareness through keeping animals in captivity. I remember growing, going to the aquarium growing up and getting to learn about and see turtles in person. And I think that's one of the reasons why I chose to major in environmental science. But captivity is only beneficial if the animals are well cared for. Exactly. The last part of the plan talks about international cooperation. As we mentioned before, Green sea turtles are a very migratory species, traveling through the coastal waters of over 140 countries. This means that this is an international issue, and so it requires international cooperation and holding all countries accountable for their actions that impact sea turtle populations. There are already so many conservation and protection plans already being implemented in the background that the general public does not even know about. If more people were aware of what's already being done, we could have a new environmental renegades be inspired to take matters in their own hands and be a part of the cause. So now we want to take a few minutes to answer any questions from you, our listeners. Please, if you have any questions for us about anything sea turtle related, please send them our way and we'll do our best to answer. All right. It looks like we have a question from G-O-E-N-V underscore Nova. What an interesting username. They are asking, do the two of you have any conservation solutions of your own that you think could help protect sea turtles? That's a great question. Thank you so much for that. Yes, we do have some ideas. Actually, as we are preparing for this podcast, we were discussing one specific idea to develop underpasses and corridors across highways in order to allow turtles to safely cross roads without the threat of being injured or killed. In some areas, the coasts are heavily fragmented by busy roads that sometimes turtles will cross in search of suitable nesting habitats. This, of course, puts the turtles, which, if you didn't know already, are very slow moving, at risk of being hit and killed by oncoming traffic. We think that having pathways for turtles to pass safely is really important to protect them when trying to safely lay their eggs. Yes, absolutely. And another thing we talked about is how we could also designate beaches as marine protected areas during certain months of the year when hatching rates are at their peak. A study done by Chalupka M in 2001 showed that there were historic peak seasons from July to September across 29 years for green sea turtle laying in Malaysia and the Philippines. So by focusing efforts on preventing human involvement on those beaches during this peak season of nesting, we can provide an environment that is fit to allow a lower mortality rate of green sea turtles before term. It looks like we have another question, this time from Turtle Lover 45 They ask, can we save green sea turtles or do you think they're doomed? We know that parts of this podcast were a little discouraging and some of the threats we talked about are definitely daunting, but we definitely think that there's hope for this species, right, Brendan? Right. I think that they can be saved if we limit human involvement in these ecosystems by providing safe passageways to protect newborn turtles and protecting areas of the beach where turtles tend to nest. We can also help by limiting runoff from construction sites and placing stricter legislation on trawling and other fishing industry practices.
All right. We have time for one more question from our listeners. Uh, let's see. Here's one from Finding Nemo Fan One. They ask, what can we, the listeners, do to help protect turtles? We are so glad you asked. There are many things that you listeners can do for help. For one thing, you can tell your friends and family to listen to this very podcast. Right, exactly. Education and awareness are vital to making positive change. You can also avoid beaches if you know they are common sea turtle nesting sites. Reduce your consumption of single-use plastics. Reduce your consumption of fish and shrimp or opt for local options. Oh, wait. One final question just came through that we have time to answer. At Turtle Teacher wants to know if green sea turtles actually live to be 150 years old. Oh, hey, Crush! Crush, I forgot! How old are you? 150, dude! It's still young! No, actually. According to the National Wildlife Federation, the average lifespan of green sea turtles is 80 to 100 years old. Thank you for such a great question. And thank you to all of you who sent in questions. It's great to hear from you all. And thank you to all of our listeners. We are so grateful for your support and hope that you have learned something new about green sea turtles during this episode. I definitely have. Once again, this is Brendan Cottingham. And Megan Gone With Crush's Corner. We hope that you have a great day and that you join us back here for our next episode. Thanks, Thanks everyone. Thank you for revealing the priority of threats for sea turtles and the relationships between sea turtles and humans, Megan and Brendan. Sounds like we need to make sure people aren't being too shellfish and leave sea turtles alone. We loved hearing about all the comprehensive strategies to protect sea turtles. To finish up our last segment in our series, we have an utterly amazing segment. Our co-hosts Michelle and Kayla are here to educate us on sea otters. Let's help them out with a joke. Why did the sea otter cross the ocean? Well, to get to the otter side. Take it away, Michelle and Kayla. Do you recognize that sound? If you said no, that's a sea otter. I'm sure you've seen many videos on social media about how cute they are, but have you ever wondered what they're like in the wild? Today on Otterly Endangered, Kayla and I will be taking a deep dive into otters and how to best protect them. To do so, we'll start in the, in the 18th century with the history of otters, then come back to the present and talk about what's going on right now, and then we will, back to the future style, talk about the future of sea otter conservation. Sea otters, surprisingly, are just like us. They are a K-selected species, which, like humans, stay with their mothers, do not have many offspring, and get parental care as younglings. In fact, mother otters will groom their young, teach them to swim, and even show them how to crack open their hard-shelled prey. I sure love my mom. 
and I'm glad to know otters do too. Sea otters help each other greatly, but they are also integral to entire ecosystems. Sea otters are keystone species, meaning without them, their rocky shore and kelp forest habitats would change drastically when compared to the loss of other species. Sea otters consume macroinvertebrates, such as sea urchins, who rely on kelp. In fact, sea otters eat as much as 25% of their body weight each day in these invertebrates. The sea otter eats the urchins, making sure the kelp is not overgrazed and can do their job of filtering ecosystems, housing marine organisms, and sequestering carbon. Sadly, otters are considered endangered on the International Union for Conservation of Nature, or IUCN, red list, which is a combination of animals, their status, and their threats. Distinctions include NE, not evaluated, DD, data deficient, LC, least concern, NT, near threatened, VU, vulnerable, EN, endangered, CR, critically endangered, EW, extinct in the wild, and EX, extinct. Sea otters are considered endangered, meaning that they are facing a very high risk of extinction in the wild. The IUCN will go through a process of assessing not only the number of organisms, but how productive they are and how they work within their ecosystems. According to the IUCN page on sea otters, their population trend is decreasing with a continued decline of mature individuals. Otters are extremely important species, so seeing that they are endangered does not only hurt their ability to reproduce, but it hurts their ability to do their jobs. Now it's time for the marine fun fact of the day. Sea otters have some interesting relatives. They are part of the Musildi family, which is a family of carnivorous mammals that include skunks, weasels, wolverines, and badgers. The sea otter is the largest member of the weasel family, yet the smallest marine mammal in North America. Maybe Hugh Jackman will play a sea otter in his next movie. Imagine this. You're a traveler from Russia coming to Alaska in the cold November month to work for the booming fur trade. You smell the salty air and feel the cool breeze off the ocean. You look over and see a furry animal, an otter. Wow, what an attractive pelt. It sure looks warm. And this is what many early Americans believed, leading to the fur trade. Originally, there were 16,000 16, sea otters on the western coastline in the United States in the late 18th and 19th century. According to Jamison and his collaborators, in 1971, only 71 sea otters were observed by the Surge Bay, Alaska Department of Fish Game Biologists. In California, in 1950, there were only 50 sea otters left. Numbers began to increase between the 1930s and the 1980s in California, but were faced with another hardship when gillnet and tamaral fisheries began to boom and their populations decreased yet again. After the fisheries were controlled by conservation guidelines, 
the numbers began to slowly increase again, but not enough to get back to their original population of 16,000. Now, all this talk about otters makes me think about how otterly amazing environmental science is. We would like to take a quick second to thank our wonderful sponsor, GEV Colloquium. Now, this podcast may only be about 20 minutes, but Colloquium is an hour and often goes over of just environmental knowledge. Dear listener, for only three semesters and as many as zero credits, you too can join the craze that is GEV Colloquium. As a part of Colloquium, you can hear some amazing speakers, like Dr. Irons, who spoke about practicing plant-human solidarity, learning with and from weeds through eco-social art, Tiffany Thedrigal from TerraCycle, um, who spoke about recycling, upcycling, sustainability, circular economy, and industrial design, and Kevin Morin, who is from the Urban Land Institute and talked about community and economic development. Wow, Michelle, that sounds great. I can't wait to spend my next three semesters in Mendel 154. Sometimes I hear there are refreshments and lively conversation. That's right, Kayla. It's very exhilarating and we all look forward to it every day after oceans. Now, let's get back to the sea otters. Now, we are going to fast forward in time. It's present day, and you are at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Here, there is a restore and release sea otter program for young sea otters that have been found abandoned in the Monterey region. It's basically foster care for sea otters. To speak more about this, we have Monterey Sea Otter Aquarist, Nikki Dinsmore. I've gotten a lot of experience working with different marine mammals and uh, sea otters, I just, there's something about them. They just keep me on my toes. You might come in thinking, okay, this is what the day is gonna be like. And then the sea otters have a totally different agenda. So you kind of have to go with it. Some things that do have to happen are, um, we have to prep food for these guys. They, they eat 25 to 30% of their body weight a day. So it's a lot of food prep in the morning. And um, then we also do uh, sessions with them where we feed them and clean up after them and clean up after them and clean up after them. <laughs> it's, it's really amazing to be out on deck with these otters and then you look out and you see the public allowing these people to get so up close and personal with them really helps to build this value and this connection between the public and these animals. Wow, talk about charismatic megafauna. So, as Michelle said before, sea otters are incredibly reliant on their mothers. Monterey Bay uses their behaviors to better conserve this species. When there is a large storm, they can get separated. So the Monterey Bay Sea Otter Program will try to reunite it with its mother. But if they cannot find her, they take the pup to the aquarium for further care. After visiting the vet, the sea otter goes to rehabilitation. They give the pup a special formula that is like their mother's milk. They also groom the sea otter constantly because in the wild, a sea otter mom is always grooming their pup. Again, the Monterey Bay program is really great at mimicking the sea otter's natural behavior. 
They also teach the sea otter how to swim and give them some toys to chew on to strengthen their jaw. During this process, the humans will wear a dark outfit that hides their faces so they don't bond with humans and they stay wild. After about two months of care, the otters are given to a surrogate mom who will provide maternal care and teach them what they need to know to survive. Like I said, it's their own version of foster care. Currently, there are about 2,800 sea otters in California. The Monterey Bay Aquarium works closely with the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, just like the Camden Aquarium, to find homes for the sea otters who cannot be released into the wild. Now, listen to the success story from Monterey. Hi everyone, and welcome to the Monterey Bay Aquarium Sea Otter Exhibit. Though Selka may be our youngest and smallest sea otter here at the aquarium, what she lacks in size, she definitely makes up for it in personality. Small, svelte, and sharp as a tack, Selka made a splash when she joined our family in August of 2016. But we got to know her many years before that. At just one week old, Selka was rescued by our staff and volunteers when she was found stranded back in 2012. After being raised by resident sea otter surrogate mom extraordinaire Rosa, Selka successfully returned to the wild for a few months before she was found stranded again, this time because of severe shark bite injuries. After a second stint of rehabilitation at the aquarium, Selka was eventually deemed non-releasable due to those injuries and her dependence on humans. For such a young sea otter, Selka has seen and done a lot in her years as a rescued and a wild sea otter. Here at the aquarium, Selka, like many of our resident sea otters, helps to raise orphan pups as a surrogate mother, something she has been great at because of her easygoing and inquisitive nature. When she's not raising the next generation of otterly possum pups, you can often spot Selka swimming with Rosa, playing with fellow young sea otters Ivy and Kit, and keeping our sea otter team on their paws. Thanks for watching, everyone. Wow, that is amazing. If you guys didn't know, we are in studio here at Villanova University, and it's been very cold here. But could you imagine swimming in the icy offshore waters? Luckily, otters have between 600 and 100,000 hair follicles per square inch. This coat helps them to stay warm, as they lack blubber like other marine mammals. Not only is this fur extremely dense, but it's water resistant for insulation and buoyancy. Like we said before, otters groom themselves extremely often, but you would too if you had that much hair. Did you hear that? I think it's time to go back to the future. So what does the future look, for sea, look like for sea otters? A study done with Texas A&M University, USGS, National Park Foundation, Seattle Aquarium, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services, and Fisheries and Oceans Canada gave us seven steps to help save the sea otters. Step one is to define sea otter populations at smaller scales so we can understand the population dynamics of a specific area rather than trying to define the overall population. All of the steps moving forward are going to focus on specific locations 
rather than the big old ocean, because every area is going to be a little different. Step two is to understand the factors and threats that impact sea otter population density, whether that's an oil spill or lack of prey or something else. Step three entails understanding how food availability limits population and ecosystem recoveries. Like, for example, how commercial fisheries impact the availability of invertebrates that sea otters often rely on as a food source, like sea urchins. Step four is making sea otter monitoring programs that are comparable across different countries. This means that there needs to be one um, common monitoring program throughout every single country so that we can collaborate internationally and collect data on sea otter recover co recovery globally so we can compare the results. Step five is to evaluate to see if it's worth to introduce sea otters into their historical habitats or if it will cause more harm than good. For example, if we were to introduce a sea otter to its old habitat, would it cause a trophic cascade? Step six is to assess the costs and benefits of sea otter range expansion to anticipate the and mitigate conflicts that may arise because of it. And the last step is to recognize that conservation and management plans that sea otters can be significantly affected by higher levels of predators in some circumstances. Like, for example, we saw or we heard at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, Selka got attacked by a shark and no longer could survive in the wild. Many of these challenges will require new tools like geolocation tag technology, which will allow scientists to assess long-range movements, dispersal, and gene flow in many sea otter populations. This plan could be a great way to help the sea otters, but aside from this and the Monterey Bay Aquarium initiatives, there aren't many guidelines and practices in place to help the sea otters. One way an individual can help the sea otters is cut down the amount of motor oil they use as oil spills are a big cause of sea otter mortality. Instead of driving, individuals can walk, bike, or carpool. Other personal changes you can make are using non-toxic cleaning products as those get into the water waves and harm the physiology of sea otters, volunteer at beach cleanups to decrease the risk of a sea otter eating a piece of plastic and dying, donate to organizations like the Monterey Bay Aquarium or the California Sea Otter Fund, and most importantly, vote for representatives who value marine conservation and protecting endangered species. We have another marine fun fact of the day. Woohoo! You know how in class we learned that corals only spawn at certain times of the year? Well, that's not the same for the sea otters. Sea otters can have a pup any time of the year. Southern sea otters breed and pup year-round, while northern sea otter pups in Alaska are usually born in the spring. A newborn pup needs constant attention and will stay with its mother for six months until it develops survival skills. As we said before, otter fur is extremely dense. An otter pup's fur is so dense that it can't dive underwater until it gets its adult fur. This, is, this comes in handy 
when mothers leaves that leave their pups safely floating on the water's surface while they forage for food. Sea otters are not only fluffy and cute, but are so incredibly important for holding up entire ecosystems. By protecting this species, we'll be able to protect their entire food web and the ecosystem services they provide. Through maintaining these populations, we ensure that kelp forests can continue to sequester carbon, which is especially important in this age of carbon emissions. Thank you all so much for listening, and if you would like to follow up on sea otters, you can check out Monterey Bay Aquarium's live otter cam, monitor them through the IUCN Red List, or even visit your local zoo. Thank you so much. What a superstar lineup of segments we had in this episode today. We certainly changed some minds and stirred up some concepts and some key information about some topical ocean topics. Well, thank you for joining us for our fall 2022 episode of Tales of Marine Conservation in the Oceans in the Anthropocene course at Villanova. This is Captain Conservation looking out over the bow of his ship, the research vessel Nova, contemplating about a more hopeful and bright horizon for all the creatures in the ocean world. Please tune in next semester for our next segment of Tales of Marine Conservation. And to all of our dedicated marine listeners out there, bye-bye and thanks for all the fishes. Thank you.